but it's been fun. So we're back into the letters, and we're into Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and, have, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here we are with Sardis. And Sardis, let's start with a bit of historical context. Sardis is a city in Turkey, Anatolia at the time, modern Turkey today. And we'll put a picture up of it, what it, the artist would have thought it looked like historically. Sardis was known for being in that valley, the Hermes Valley. It had the shadow of Mount Tmolus behind it. You see it right there behind. And that mountain is still large. We'll show the next picture is what it looks like today from the, the ruins up to the city. Um, it's still there. But most scholars say that that mountain was, that's a third of the size it was at the time of writing Revelation because such rapid erosion has happened. So Sardis had this reputation of being an impregnable city. It was, it was protected from the, in the south, that, that mountain faces south. Um, it was protected from enemies. And then it was surrounded by a wall. So everybody knew you just don't bother invading Sardis. In fact, it only happened a few times, and we'll talk about that later. So it had this reputation of being impregnable. Now, it was a very wealthy city, roughly the size of 60, or 100, 60 to 100,000 people at the time of the writing of Revelation. Very wealthy. However, it was kind of understood that the city was like an athlete who has spent little, too many years before retirement, you know? The guy who you're like, just retire. Just retire. You're, you're tarnishing your image. And in that way, so that was kind of Sardis. Sardis was understood to be fading. They had wealth, but they were more, they're going out with a whimper. So they had this image, this, this uh, reputation. They were past their prime. And similarly, the church has a similar reputation. In fact, a name, the word reputation there is the Greek word for name. And the reputation was they looked alive, but they were dead. They had all the signs. Think about at Easter, or not Easter quite, but when Jesus curses the fig tree, you know that scene? When he curses it because it has lots of leaves but no fruit. That's kind of what Sardis is being accused of here. And they're... they're they're dead, they're not alive, they're asleep, they're not awake. And um, when Jesus shows up to them here, in that first verse, he says, I come as the one holding the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the churches in the same hand. And what, the reason that's important is he's coming and saying, if there is going to be an awakening here, revival of any type in the church, it must be that that relationship, which is so close that they're in the same hand, that must be revived. The church must become a spirit-filled church again. I'm not talking charismatic, barking like dogs. I'm simply talking there needs to be an understanding that the spirit that gives life is in the church. That's what's going to, if there's going to be revival, it must come in the restoration of that relationship. And so what we have here in this letter is a profile of what it means to be ecclesiastically sleepwalking. What does it look like when a church is sleepwalking? And what does it look like when Christians are sleepwalking? Because there's many of us that are sleepwalking. And so we get a great profile here. So what we're going to see is, as usual, three things. We're going to see what happens when you sleep. 
what it looks like when you're awake, and then how you can stay awake. Okay? What happens when you sleep? Let's start there. So, first you'll notice that Jesus mixes his metaphors here. He has the alive and dead, but then asleep and awake. And in some ways, the New Testament uses them sometimes interchangeably, right? Because he'll refer to Lazarus when, in John 11, that Lazarus is asleep, right? And the, the, the girl he, he heals and raises to life. They're just asleep. They're not dead. So there, you can mix those. And yet, we have to follow the line here that when he speaks to the church in Sardis, he is not saying they are dead, meaning they are not Christians. He's saying they are Christians. And we know that because he continues the metaphor of sleeping, and he says, strengthen what remains. So it means there is something there. He talks about awaking. So what, so what he's dealing with is a church that has forgotten the gospel. It's a church that are Christians that are asleep. That's who is being addressed here specifically. And what we need to figure out is what are the signs of it? How do you know when you're asleep? And in the letter, it's pretty straightforward. The first thing he says is, I know you're asleep because your works are incomplete. I don't know about you, but if anyone fell asleep at college writing papers, anyone? I fell asleep in my face. Yeah, Ben and I, we know the pain. I'm still there. I mean, I've been in school nonstop. And if you haven't fallen asleep and woke up with the computer keyboard imprinted on your face, you're not in college. You're, you're asleep. But you see, when you, and you see, when you do that happens, what, what it, the result is your work isn't done. It's incomplete. And Jesus is saying very clearly, like a judge, I have come to inspect, and I have found the works wanting. They're not done. They're incomplete. So they've fallen asleep. The work that, it's almost like this. The question he's asking is not, what did you do for me, but what have you finished for me? There's a subtle difference, but there is a difference. And that's the question he's coming. And one of the things that, with, and one of the things I think are, are important is, we can almost read this letter without thinking carefully about what he doesn't say. And what he doesn't say is there's no persecution in this church from outside, and there's no heresy in the church. Every other church he said, there's a Jezebel, right? There's a Nicolaitan. There's somebody in there who's stirring up trouble from within. Or he said, there's persecution coming and people are dying. But here there's none of that. So what you have, first, if there's no heresy, that means we can assume that the church has decent preaching. That the preaching, the, the teaching coming out of the church is orthodox. We assume that. Um, but it obviously has no power. Something is, something's missing. But there's orthodoxy, at least on, on the surface. And if there's no persecution coming to the church, then that means, I think here, that what we are seeing is a model of inoffensive Christianity. They're not in any they're, they're so innocuous in the culture that the world doesn't care to persecute them. And this is why I said a few weeks ago, if, if America and Canada, if, we, if the Western countries wanted to kill Castro and get communism out of Cuba, we should have just flooded them with Coca-Cola and Nintendo and Elvis Presley because then they would have seen what they're missing, and they all would have risen up and say, we want waterbeds, right? We want these things. And so, with the church, I'm a little concerned sometimes with the church that we are so busy worrying about persecution coming that we don't realize we're falling asleep, and that we're actually innocuous. If nobody is here knocking on our door and occasionally sending me an email saying, you've gone a little far, you shouldn't have said this, I don't know if that... I'm not looking for persecution. But is it possible we're not being persecuted because they're like, it's nothing to persecute. They're just like us, but they have their busy Sunday morning. It's the only difference. So there's at least that indictment of the church in Sardis. We see that very clearly. Now, what's going on? So when we're asleep, here's what happens. So think about your natural when you actually sleep physically. What happens is you close your eyes, and then another reality takes over, the dream life. 
and you begin to get embroiled in the dream life so much so that if somebody outside is calling your name or knocking on the door or an alarm goes off, it may not wake you up. You may just roll over. And sometimes, if you notice, it even gets worked into your dreams. Right? Um, I was a baseball fan when I was a kid. I played a lot of baseball. I remember having a dream once. My mother, bless her, Portuguese lady, would wake me up every Sunday, every morning with the same words. And it was, not, it was murder. When the same thing wakes you up for your entire life, you get to resent that word. Right? And my mom would come, and in Portuguese, she would say, meaning, it's time, it's time, it's time. And there's one dream, I'm up there, and I'm at bat in Yankee Stadium. And over the loudspeakers, my mother, it's time, it's time, it's time. I tell you, it was the worst dream ever. And, but you see, the point is to see how the dream life it got confused. I didn't know which was real. So I start working the, the real world into my dream world because when you're asleep, you don't know the difference. And what's going on, I think, in the church is uh, when the dream life takes over as a Christian, you know, well, you may not know. Hopefully, somebody can help you. But you begin to realize that Jesus is less real to you than something else. So when somebody comes and we're chatting and they say something like, listen, I know God loves me, but I'm still anxious. You're dreaming or you're at least falling asleep. In fact, I think every Christian is either asleep, falling asleep, or just waking up. We're always in that spot, which is why there's such a demand from Christ that we stay awake. And so when somebody says, I'm, I, I've tr I know Jesus loves me, but I'm still worried about tomorrow. What you're saying, and, it's, and I'm not knocking anybody because we're all there, but what you're saying is this, I actually don't believe he has my best interest at heart. I'm not certain he knows what is best for me, so I have to worry about tomorrow because I'm not sure he's got it under control which means you've forgotten the gospel. Even if it's only for a moment, you're falling asleep. And, you know, you can even see it in yourself at times. When somebody comes up to you and compliments you on your Christian walk as a Christian, they say things like, oh boy, your preaching is lovely, or you're so, uh, you seem like such a faithful woman, or whatever they say to you. And you feel immediately, I'm a fraud. You ever had that? When somebody compliments you, you're like, they don't understand the real me at all. That means you're realizing you're asleep a little you know that you, like the church in Sardis, have an appearance of something that isn't authentically going on in your life. And so, you're falling asleep, and that's, that's unfortunately the natural state. We're always there, which is why we're encouraged to not fall asleep, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, these are the signs that you may be asleep, right? We're always in this position. And this is why it's important, why it's worth preaching about continually, why Jesus brings it up, not just here, but in other places because it's a very serious condition. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says that many people, remember this is a terrifying verse in chapter 7 of Matthew, uh, many people will come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy and heal in your name and cast out demons and do works? Why am I in hell? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Notice what's happening. He doesn't say, this is where the, the question about election and the choice of Christianity comes. He doesn't say, you were a Christian, I knew you, but then I stopped knowing you. No. I never knew you. Your works, listen, they say the right thing. They're saying, Lord, Lord. They're using the right verbiage. They're doing the right things. Their works and their testimony seem to be Christian. He says, I never knew you. All of that was always a front. I never had a relationship with you. Even if it looked like it, I didn't. And this is the terrifying part. How then do we know? How do we know if we're awake or asleep? And we're going to talk more about that. But that's why it's so serious. You know you're asleep when something, anything, is more real to you than Christ. And listen, that happens to all of us constantly. When I am worried about anything, 
Christ is less real to me than that. When I think I'm unlovable, it's because I believe that person's opinion or what I've done is more impactful on how lovable I am than the fact that the eternal King of glory loves me. So it's an important thing. So we need to be careful about falling asleep. So if that's what it means to be asleep a little, what does it mean? What does it look like to be awake? Well, here's where we get more into the context, the historical context of Sardis. I've told you that Sardis was known to be impregnable. Nobody would want to invade it. But there was three things that happened in the history of Sardis at varying stages, centuries apart, that gave it a reputation of being negligent and not watchful. In fact, when Jesus says, wake up, it doesn't say wake up. The Greek says, be watchful. It doesn't say wake up. Not literally. So, but the reason, why is he saying this? This is why three things happened. In 549 BC, King Cyrus, this guy, the Persian king, you may have heard him, he's in the Bible. Cyrus takes his army and decides he's run roughshod over the entire ancient Near East. And now he sets his sight on Sardis, knowing that it's a jewel that nobody really can conquer because of this mountain. And the story goes that he had some men kind of watching, trying to figure out how they're going to do this. And they see a guard from the city on the top of this mountain drop his hat. And when he does that, the guy who's part of the city climbs down the mountain, even though the facade is very vertical. This guy's like a, you know, a spider monkey crawling down that wall. And when he sees it, Cyrus and his guys say, oh, we can do that. And so they take just one guy who climbs into the city at night, opens the gate, and lets the army in. And then in 218, so 300 years later, this guy, Antiochus III, who's a, from the Seleucid dynasty, don't need to get into all that yet, this guy has the same situation. How am I going to do this 300 years later? And he has a guy from Crete named Lagarus, and uh, this guy decides, I can climb it. I'm a, I'm a spider monkey. I can climb this. So he takes 15 men and does the exact same thing. And then in 17 AD, so only 13 years before the crucifixion, then there's an earthquake that strikes Sardis and levels it and destroys it. And in all three cases, they are caught completely off guard. Completely off guard. They're not paying attention. And as a result, they had this reputation of not just being a fading city, but they became the byword, this, this euphemism for not paying attention, not being watchful. Um, so it's not a surprise that Christ then comes and says, be watchful, and brings us up to them. They're being negligent in something. Because you see, sleeping people don't hear intruders. Sleeping people don't see intruders. They don't hear them. They never notice. Their, their attention is elsewhere because they're in this other world. So Jesus says, wake up. And then when he says, what do you do? How do you, what does being awake even look like? He does what any of us who have played any sorts of sports knows. When you're slumping, I remember playing baseball, and you're slumping, the coach is... It's not rocket surgery. They say the same thing to every athlete in any situation. Go back to the basics. Let's go back to the basics. Swing hard at the ball. You'll hit it. That's simple. We're, we're overthinking it. And he comes and he says very simply, strengthen what remains. Now, by that, think about this. If the church is flourishing, because all by all accounts it was, doing very well, he's saying, you have all the stuff in place. The church has programs. It's got a building. Everything is going very, prayer, life, worship, everything is there. You have all the pieces. But to quote Shakespeare, it's, um, it's, um, it's flat, stale, and unprofitable. It's just, they're lifeless. So strengthen those things. And so what, helps, what helped me is to look at this continued metaphor all through Revelation that the church is a lampstand. And if you're here at Christmas, you know I preach through Leviticus. And um, the lampstand that was in the, holy, the meeting place was meant to be there for two reasons. One, 
was to be a symbol of the everlasting covenant. The fire is lit so long forever to show that God's covenant with Israel is forever. But then it was also there for practical reasons. Light. They needed to see. So there's this covenant answer, but then there's also light and there's warmth that lamps give off. So a church, to be a church, must be doing both. It must give off warmth, mercy ministry, caring for the downtrodden, being involved in to a degree of social justice and these things. However, this is where I need to caution people, and I know this makes enemies of the more liberal Christians in the world. That's not enough. The, the quote that's often ascribed to Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel often, and when necessary, use words, it's nonsense. Okay? I'll tell you why it's nonsense. Because it's, very, it's vital that our lives match. So we must do good works. We must care for the downtrodden. We have to. It's our job. However, if I save a person's life from a raging river, give them a cup of water, give them money, whatever I do with my good works, they never get the gospel. They're shown something, but let me show you why. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. That in Jesus Christ, God is fulfilling all of his promises to save Israel through this family. And his son would come as man to live the life we could not, to die the death we could not, and to be raised to glory, to put sin to death, so that by faith we would have eternal life with him. Gospel. I give you a cup of water, you don't get that. You get a cup of water. You get to live a little, right? And that's good. We should do that. But you can never read the gospel off the face of good works. And this is why liberal churches are wrong. I'm sorry, I have to say it. Because we can't simply become people who have bind only the wounds of the body. We must bind the wounds of the soul. Otherwise, you give them 30 extra years of life, but they have an eternity in hell. And this is why Christ comes and says you have to be both. You must be a light to the community and warmth. They're not mutually exclusive. And you can't say, no, I'm only going to do this one thing. No, eventually your good works will have to they'll say something like, why do you like me? Why are you caring for me? Then the gospel must come. And so a church that is sleeping is clearly, and almost always, unevangelistic. They, they don't try, they don't care to share the gospel. They show they care more about the downtrodden, the physical needs, than the lost person with money. And yet, are we brave enough, Christian enough, to see that the wealthy person with no physical needs in their life is actually in just as bad or worse a spot than the one who is dying of cancer? Are we able to see that? Well, that's one of the calls. It's a sign of a healthy church. It's both and warm and light. But then let's go even more practical. I'm a pastor, and it looks by all accounts that these letters, when it says it's written to the angel of the church of Sardis, the angel of the church of Laodicea, the angel is the pastor. Most scholars would say he's not writing to the actual angel because why would Jesus write a letter to the angel? Through a person. It makes no sense. It's not messengers from these other churches coming to get them. He's writing to the pastor of these churches saying, you're the guy I put there. You have to lead this. If that's the case, then I have to realize when he says that I have to strengthen what remains, that I can't simply be saying, I have to make sure my preaching is not a lecture, but it's a sermon. We have to make sure that the worship is not just music playing, but it's worship. That the prayer is not just words, because you want to say the right thing in front of people, whereas we all feel that temptation, but you're praying to God. That when we give finances to the church, it's not just doing my duty and giving money and they should thank me because I'm paying Carl's salary but instead saying, I'm sacrificing. See, and there's a clear difference. We have to strengthen what remains. And this is why there's moments where some people are not going to like me. Because I'll come into the ministries we do here at the church and say, hey, is it still doing what it's supposed to do? Or has it become cannibalistic? Has a ministry become such a ministry that 
um, we, we do it, but the only people who eat it and consume it are ourselves. Have we stopped being a light to the world? And we have to continually be auditing because we're falling asleep all the time. And we'll talk about that in the third point. And so we're being called to do that, to strengthen. What an awake church looks like is a church that is not just doing the right things, and you may not even be able to tell the difference, right? Outwardly, I can't see the difference all the time. I don't know the difference between a thriving church and, an, and a dead church. Because the only symptom, how, do else, how would I determine what that is? Growth? That's silly. The third right grew very quickly. Growth is not the issue. Weeds grow all the time. So what is the criteria? Well, we don't know, which is why we're called to do what we are in the third point, which I'll get to in a minute. No, I'll get to that right now. Let's do it right now. So we're asleep. We're in danger of falling asleep. We're called to stay awake. We now know what that looks like, this vibrancy of our faith. Oh, here's another example. Sorry, here's a sidebar. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I met with a, f- a couple who have been uh, checking out the church, a uh, young couple. And they asked me, because I said, I was talking about discipleship and stuff, and they said, well, how do you know who are that small core of people that you're actually going to build with? Because most people come to church as passengers. They come, they tithe, they're wonderful people, but they're not really interested in knowing how do I transform my life? How does my life as a teacher, uh, uh, a lawyer, a barista, a mechanic, how does that life How do I glorify God with that beyond just doing a good job? Some people want to go deeper. So they said, how do you know the difference? Um, I said, listen, I'm not sure exactly. Only thing I can do is look for the hunger that people have. When people are hungry for the word of God, it's very difficult for that to be faked. When they sacrifice their time with their family and everything they can to be around, to pray with people, to go out and serve, when they come and ask the right questions of, this is going on. I want to fix this part of my life. I had this argument with my wife, and I don't, how, do I, how do I do that better? I don't know if that's salvation, but I do know that's what I think health looks like when somebody is not content to fall asleep and knows they're in danger of falling asleep, so is looking for tricks to stay awake. So I think that's what some of this looks like. But now, let me go into how to stay awake. How do we do this? I'm going to use a quote from a book. It's, well, it's a movie as well. You've all watched the movie, I'm sure. It's called The Wizard of Oz. But in the book, there's a scene about this, but the, but the book gets it a little differently. It's when, they're, when Dorothy falls asleep in the poppy fields. Everybody knows that scene? Here's what it says. The friends walked as fast as they could. As they walked, they looked at all the beautiful things around them. Brightly colored birds were flying about and singing in the trees. The ground was covered with yellow, white, blue, and purple flowers. There were lots of bright red poppies, too. The poppies are the most beautiful flowers, Dorothy said. They are so bright, and their scent is beautiful. I've always loved flowers, said the cowardly lion, but these are more beautiful than the ones in the forest. I would like them more if I had brains, said the scarecrow, and I would love them too if I had a heart, said the tin man. And there were more and more poppies now. Their scent was very strong, and Dorothy began to feel sleepy. Toto was sleepy too. Dorothy was in danger, but she did not know it. If she fell asleep in the poppy field, she might never wake up again. I'm very tired, Dorothy said. I must sleep. No, you can't sleep here, my dear. Tin Man told her. We must get back to the yellow brick road before dark. But it was too late. Dorothy's eyes had closed. How do you and I stay awake in a world that is the poppy field? Because it's a beautiful world. And we, we're such, this is my Calvinism coming in, we're so depraved. It's not even the beauty of the world you fall for. The worst part is you fall for the ugliest parts. Men fall for the pornography of the world. Women can, well, I'm not just generalizing women too, but we fall for the ugly things, the gossip, the competition, 
the hatred, the anger, the fear, the anxiety, we fall for it. And I'm saying we fall for it because you may say, I don't love it. You don't. You give your life to it. That's the problem. Remember that old hymn that says, for thee all the follies of sin I resign. That's not what the original words were. It said, for thee all the love of sin I resign. But we changed it because we thought, no, no, nobody loves sin. Yeah, you do. Like a lot. And if you, don't, if you don't love it, if you're not addicted to sin, it's very simple. Give it up. Go ahead. And you can't. So how do we stay awake when we're like Dorothy? All we see around us are things that are beautiful, that are causing us to fall asleep. Worries. Beautiful and ugly things. How do we do it? And the answer is so simple, but it's, but it's difficult. And Christ says it in verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So the answer is very simple. You, don't, you already have it. He's speaking to a church. As Christians, you already have what you need to stay awake. Remember what you've heard and received, which is the gospel. You have it already. But what you're not doing is keeping it. That word keep it is in the, in the, um, uh, in the Greek is a, is a word that is active and ongoing. It's not an ended thing. What he's saying is keep on keeping it. Keep on being faithful to the gospel which means you mustn't just think the idea that, well, the gospel is that I'm saved by faith. Now that I'm saved, the gospel's done with me. No, that's not the truth. The gospel is kind of like deodorant. You have to put it on all the time or you start to stink. And you have to always be thinking about it. It doesn't mean you're going to be saved again by applying it. It simply means that if you want to continue to grow more like Christ, you have to say, what does the gospel mean for, the, for my anxiety? What does the gospel mean for the bad diagnosis I got or the job loss or the fact that I've been single and I really want to be married or the fact that I've been married and I can't seem to keep a marriage together? What does the gospel mean? And you apply it to that continual. Keep on keeping it over and over and over again. And think about when you're in a car. Has anybody had to drive and try to stay awake in a car? <laughs> it's difficult. What do you do? Well, you open the window, right? You, try, you hope cold air will do it. Um, you blast the music. Maybe you call somebody you give, who's slapped themselves. Yeah, you have. I have. I've beaten myself silly before. And you do all this because you know to fall asleep is dangerous. If a Christian is not trying to keep themselves awake by opening the fresh air of the gospel in, reading scripture, listening to music that will encourage you whenever you can, praying with people, calling somebody who will encourage you in that walk, and having people near you who will hold you accountable and say, you're sleeping if you're not doing that, can I just suggest maybe you don't mind falling asleep? And that doesn't mean you're not saved, but it might. Remember what Jesus says about the calling, right? I don't know if you're saved. Carl can't give you guarantees that you're saved. I don't know that. But I do know that people who are asleep will go to heaven. That seems pretty clear by what Christ is saying. Some people who are asleep can't lose their salvation because you didn't get your salvation by being awake, right? Christ woke you. So I'm not saying you're going to lose your faith. But I am saying he may say, I never knew you. Look how much you loved sleep. You never loved me. I know you liked the music and you liked the community, but you didn't want me. You wanted my money. You wanted the family that I have, but you didn't want me. And that is terrifying to a pastor and as a father with six children. And that's something we should be, very, I think, very careful to watch. So what does it look like? And I just mentioned it a little. People who are awake are curious. They're hungry for the word in some way. Even if you had a life where you were never a scholar before and you're not one now, you crave to know more about the word. doesn't mean you have to be a scholar. Let us use like the poor straw man in the Wizard of Oz. 
let's use whatever brains we have to glorify God. It's okay if we're not, but that's our, there's a hunger for the word. There is an, a life lived that way. Have you ever met people who you're like, man, they seem so holy, and you're almost humbled in their presence? Those sorts of, that's the kind of people we're to be, people whose lives reflect it, where we say, I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to keep company with this because I want to keep my garments white for my Lord. So they have a life that matches it. Um, they're faithful, and that faith is rewarded. And I can't go into all these, what he's saying here with the book of life, but what we do know is this. Christ is very clear. If you confess me in life, I will confess you before the Father. If you are, and okay, I will go a little bit into it. Israel believed the book of life was for every Jew. You get circumcised, and you're born into a Jewish family, you're in the book of life. However, you are in there by a promise. God says, I will save every Israelite, providing there is faith. There must be faith. Always has been, always will be. And that's why you see in, in Psalm 69, verse 28, for instance, he says, I will bl- don't blot out the names of people. Because there's a way to get yourself out of the family of Israel. Is that what John is talking about here? We don't know. But what we do know is this. You're here now. You're hearing the gospel. The book of life is here, within your reach. The Spirit is here saying these things to you. I don't know if you're going to be saved, but we do know this. The people who endure and who do chase after God and labor to stay awake, we know that they will not be disappointed. That whatever they have clung to of the gospel, they won't finally at the end say, I held on to you, nothing else but you. Notice those people in Matthew 7. They didn't say, Lord, Lord, we had faith in you to save us. They said, Lord, Lord, I worked for you, and you didn't save me. They never trusted Christ. They trusted their work to save them. I did good things. Look at my tax receipt, how much I gave. And Christ here is saying, trust him for salvation, not your work. Your work is useless to him. He doesn't need better workers. He needs faithful people. And this is what, I don't know what it looks like, but here's what I will say. If you're a Christian, wake up. Live in the reality of your salvation. If you're a skeptic, somebody who's on the fence at the moment, I would say this. You are hearing in your presence right now the gospel. It's been declared for you. Christ died for you. You cannot be saved by your work. If this is true, if the gospel is true, it is not a good fate for those who don't trust. It's accept or not. But the Christians, we have this in our, we have this. Remember that old hymn? I don't know if anybody even sings it anymore. Um, It's called, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Some of the old guys will say, yeah, I remember that one, Pastor. I remember that one. And um, I know it because Johnny Cash sang it. That's the only reason I know it. And it's ahead of verse said this, Let us lay before the Master from dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done and the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. And the faith there is not in their work, but let us labor for the Master because we know because of his promise we will be saved if we endure in faith. And we cling to that. That's what Sardis is being told to do. Jesus on the cross suffered for falling asleep, even though he didn't. Jesus is the only human ever to live fully awake, always awake. And yet he suffered what we deserve for falling asleep so that you could get the reward he deserved for being awake. It's the gospel. There's no other hope but this awake, loving God of ours. Let's pray.